Welcome to the Rick Reed Sermon Podcast. Dr. Reed serves as the president of Heritage College and Seminary. He is passionate about preaching God's Word and training a new generation of biblical preachers. The sermon you are about to hear today was given in a chapel service at Heritage College and Seminary. Last May 25th in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a black man died under the knee of a white police officer. The video of George Floyd lying face down on the pavement saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, went viral. Shook up people around the United States, shook up people around the world, and rightfully so. Because what it did is it exposed that grisly and grim death, unjust and un, unex, inexcusable, that death exposed a long-seated, long-term sense of injustice and inequality that many black men and women have lived with in the United States for years. And I say that with sadness because America is the, the place I was born. And though we have become dual citizens, Canadian and U.S., I still have a deep caring, a deep heart of love for the country where I was born. So I find no sadness in the racial turmoil and tension that I see playing out across the United States. Now, it would be easy for some who are Canadians to look and say, well, I'm so glad we're not like those Americans. It would be easy to think that rage, racial prejudice and discrimination all stopped at the 49th parallel. It was only a problem south of the border. But if we are honest, we know that's not the case. Canada has been a warm and welcoming country for many, many people over the years. And my family is one of them. But Canada has its own history of racial tension, whether it's between the English and the First Nations, whether it's between the English and the French, whether it's between, I've read a history on Toronto in the, eight, in the 19th century, the mid-1800s, there was strong tension downtown Toronto between the English and the Irish. We have our own history of racial discord and inequality. But it's even more personal than that. It's not just a matter of macro countries. When you talk about prejudice and and a lack of true equality. When you, when you talk about things, you got to also look at yourself, right? I have to look at my heart. You have to look at your heart. We have to look at our churches. Because it's possible that we carry our own sense of prejudice inside of us. Maybe unspoken, but still indeed the case. See, it's possible to love Chinese food, but not have any Chinese friends. It's possible to love eating Jamaican patties but not connect with Jamaican people. It's possible to say that our church doors are open to everyone but not work equally hard to make everyone feel welcome once they step inside our church doors. I was talking to a dear friend this summer who told me of uh, some years ago a black family began to attend their local church here in the, in the uh, Cambridge area. And he said, people were polite to them, but distant. And in time, that family chose to go somewhere else. Now, the issue of racial 
tension, racial divide is nothing new. It's not a new problem. In fact, it was a problem from the very beginning of the church. You read the book of Acts and you, you find in Acts chapter 6 that there is a story of, of Hellenistic widows, widows who came from, from a, around Jerusalem, around Judea. They weren't, they weren't from the homeland, right? They lived throughout the Roman Empire, but they were in Jerusalem. And when the church began, some of those widows, Hellenistic widows, felt overlooked in the daily distribution of food to needy people. Now, there's no hint that there was any intentional mistreatment. It's just that the Hebraic Jews didn't tend to see the Hellenistic Jews in the same way they saw people from their own backgrounds. Then you read through the rest of the book of Acts and you read the New Testament epistles and you find that one of the consistent trouble spots, one of the consistent challenges for the early church was crossing racial divides, helping people from different places come together in the church and feel like true brothers and sisters. That was one of the challenges that the apostle Paul wrote about again and again in his letters. So this morning, I want to take you to a passage that shows you God's vision for his church as bringing people together across racial lines. God's vision for his church of bringing people from every tribe and tongue and nation together in one body as equal brothers and sisters. I want to show you a passage that makes that clear in a way that to me is stunning. It's breathtaking. And the reason I want to show it to you is it's part of discipleship. This fall in our chapels here at Heritage, we've been talking about the cost and rewards of discipleship, of following Jesus. Today, I want to talk to you about the racial costs and rewards of following Christ. There's some things that have to die inside of us so that better things can live through us. Today, I want you to see God's vision for his church. I think it's a vision you, especially you in your generation, will find captivating. And you will resonate with it and say, yes. And my hope is that God will use you, students here, faculty, staff here, to be part of the bigger problem in our world, to showcase that God's love is strong enough to bring people together and to bring them together in unity in Christ This vision is breathtaking and it's needed in our broken and divided world. And I want to show it to you today. It's found, it is recorded in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So would you join me in Ephesians chapter 2? Today we're going to be in verses 11 to 22. And I want to talk to you about God's vision for racial unity within the church. And then I want to get personal. How does that apply to you? How does that apply to me? How does that play out at Heritage College and Seminary? How does it play out in the churches that you and I love and serve? What is God's vision for racial unity within the church? We're going to see that today in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Would you let me pray for us? And then we'll look at this passage together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you Every single one of us, we come to you at the foot of the cross and find ourselves equally needy of your grace and yet equally welcomed in by your grace. I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus shed for me, shed for us, shed for the sins of the whole world that offers every person on our globe a place to find home within your family, the church and home eternally with you in heaven. 
And I'm asking, Lord, that that vision would so captivate us that it would move us past whatever barriers we find in our hearts or in our institutions, and that we would showcase to a broken and divided world the hope that's found in Christ. Hope not only to be reconciled with you, but to be reconciled to others from across racial and ethnic lines. We pray that this would be the case. Lord, we need this. Our world needs this. And I ask that you would bring it and allow us to be part of the solution. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 11, Paul begins with these words. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So Paul begins this section of the book, and he's, spe he's speaking specifically to Gentiles. Did you see that in verse 11? Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. I would suspect that most of you who are hearing me speak today fit into the category of the Gentiles, right? If you're not Jewish, then you are Gentile, right? So you are, you're part of this larger group called the Gentiles. Here, the Gentiles are called by the Jewish people, they're called the uncircumcision. Do you see that? Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Circumcision was a defining mark of Jewish people. It was given to Abraham and his descendants. It was codified into the Mosaic law. So that when the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, what they were saying is, you're not part of us. You're an outsider. You're from away. You don't belong. So Paul writes to Gentiles. That would be like everyone here, most, most, most everyone here. And he says, hey, Gentiles, let me remind you, because he says the word remember twice, verse 11 and then in verse 12. Let me remind you of your spiritual history. And what he does in verse 12, he gives five short little statements that summarize the spiritual history of the Gentiles. Now listen, I want you to take this personally. If you're a Gentile here today, I'm a Gentile, most of you are. This is our spiritual history. It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. But Paul says, let me just remind you, remember, remember who you are. Remember where you're from. So look at verse 12. Let me show these five little short, succinct summaries of your spiritual history. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, here's the first, separated from Christ. You know what your history is? You were born separated from Christ. Remember, Jesus, the Christ, was the Jewish Messiah. And you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So you're separated from Christ. That's the first. Look at the second one. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated. The commonwealth of Israel means the, like the nation of Israel. You were alienated. They weren't friends with you. You weren't friends with them. So you're separated from Christ. You're alienated from Israel. Look at the third one. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Do you see that in verse 12? Strangers to the covenants of promise. What's that about? Well, you remember the covenants. God made it with Abram and then later with David. These covenants were given to the Jews. They were God's promises for blessing, both now and forever. And Paul says, hey, you Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, you weren't a part of those. Like those weren't for you. All those wonderful promises, yeah, you need not apply. You were, you were a stranger to those covenants. Look what he says next in verse 12. 
having no hope. Having no hope, which means you can't change this. You're in a world of hurt. You're separated. You're an outsider. And you can't do anything to make it better. You have got no hope. In Dante's Inferno, he says there's a sign hanging over the gates entering into hell. And it says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. It's like Paul is saying in his own way to Gentiles, abandon all hope, you who are Gentiles. You can't get out of the situation you're in. You've got no hope. And look at the fifth thing he says in verse 12, without hope and without God in the world. Oh, Gentiles had lots of gods. They had idols galore. Remember Acts 17, Paul goes into Athens. He sees them everywhere. They had lots of gods, lots of idols, but they didn't have the one true God. Now, Paul's point here is to say, Gentiles, I want you to remember this. Do you see that again in verse 12? Remember, remember, think about this. This is you. This is your story. Here's why that's important, especially for us. The Gentiles who first read his letter, they would have read that and go, yeah, I know all that. I feel that. But the Gentiles that I'm talking to today, many of you, you don't feel that history. That's distance. That's not your story. Many of you grew up in the church and you've always felt included and welcomed in your church. Most of you grew up in a church where everybody ethnically was like you, or most of the people were like you. So you were in the majority. You don't really know viscerally, many of you, I, I'm, I'm in this group, you don't know what it feels like to be an outsider to the church, an outsider to the majority. You've always been on the inside. And Paul says, no, listen, I want you to go back for a second and remember your history. You were an outsider. You had no hope. And this would have been the story forever for you Gentiles. This would have been your story, end of story, except for one thing. The one thing is this. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Not just the Jewish world. God so loved the world. The Gentile world too. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, should not, what, perish, but have, what, everlasting eternal life. So you Gentiles, you were without hope except for one thing. God came after you. God sent his son. God made a way for you through Christ's life and Christ's death to go from being on the outside to being on the inside. And what Paul does now in verses 13 to 22 is masterful. He shows you two ways. He digs deep. And this is, this, by the way, I got to tell you today, this is tough sledding. This is, this, there, if you're going to get this, you're going to have to think hard with me. Theologically, this is dense. This is deep. But Paul's going to show you two ways that Jesus' death has made it possible for you as a Gentile to be included and to make it possible for all of us, whatever background we come from, to be united. Here's the hope of the world when it comes to racial unity. Here's why we can, as Christians, say, you know, to a divided world, there is hope. It's found in Jesus. So Paul's going to tell you two things that Jesus' death did to bring people together. I want to show them to you and apply them to your heart and mind. Here's the first one. It comes out of verses 13 to 16. Paul is going to say in verse 13 to 16, and this is massive, he's going to say this. Jesus died to kill the hostility that keeps us apart. 
He's going to make this case that Jesus died. He laid down his life. And one of the reasons he did it was to actually, by his death, to put to death hostility between people. Jesus died to kill the hostility that keeps people apart, keeps people apart across racial lines. Jesus died to kill that. You say, well, how do you get that? Well, look with me at verse 13. Let me walk you through the text. And you're going to have to think clearly with me because, as I said, this is pretty thick theologically. But follow this, verse 13. But now, like that was then, this is now. But now, in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ, you who were once far off, that's you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You didn't bring yourself near. You have been brought near. You didn't find your way home. You've been brought near. And you were brought near, verse 13 says, by the blood of Jesus. Like it cost Jesus a lot to bring you near. Cost him his life's blood, right? There's no higher price than that. That's what it cost for God to bring you near to himself. But now in verse 14, Paul goes on to say, but get this, when God brought you near to himself through Jesus' death, he didn't just bring you near to himself, he brought you near to his people. He brought you close to all the other believers. Look at verse 14. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, talking there about relational peace, who has made us both, that's Jews and Gentiles, has made us both one, So we used to be two, right? We used to be two groups, Jews, Gentiles. He's made us himself. He's made us one and has, catch this, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now track with me on this. He says, this is what Jesus did. He in his flesh, so through his body on the cross, he broke down a wall. Paul calls it the dividing wall of hostility. Like, what's that? Well, you know what a wall does. A wall keeps people apart, right? Many of you here in this room are too young to remember the Berlin Wall. But after World War II, there was a wall made that ran through the city of Berlin that kept East Berliners apart from West Berliners. And it was a wall of hostility. There were guards on the wall. And if you tried to get away from one side to the other, the guards would shoot you. This wall was a wall of hostility. It kept people apart. 1989, that wall came down. Broken down wall. Now, spiritually speaking, there was a wall between Jews and Gentiles. And there was hostility on both sides. And Jesus, by his death, in his body, breaks down the wall. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, look at the next verse. He tells you, verse 15. This is where it gets really technical, but very theologically profound. Look what it says. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, this is how he did it, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Saying this, when he died, he broke down the wall by abolishing the law of commandments. What is the law of commandments? Well, that'd be the Mosaic law. He broke down the Mosaic law. So what it says, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Did you know that the Mosaic law, when it was given to God's people, Israel, did you know that one of the purposes of the law was to keep them separate from the rest of the nations? That's part of why the law was given, 
When they came out of Egypt, headed for Canaan, God didn't want them to become like the other nations. So he gave them a law. And one of the purposes of the law, not the only and maybe not the chief purpose, was to make his people a separate people, set apart from all the nations. And you know how God did that? He gave them ordinances or commands on what they had to eat and what they had to wear and on days they had to observe and that what they had to eat and wear and observe made them different from everybody else. So the other people are over there eating pork and they're going, yeah, we can't do that. So we'll have to stay, we can't have, we can't have meals with you. Came to what they wear, it came to the days, they had Sabbath, they had, so all these laws, part of what they were is they were a protective wall to keep God's people together and to keep them separate. But Jesus comes and he breaks down the wall. How does he do that? Look again at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus comes and by his death he fulfills the law. And he institutes a new covenant. The old covenant is now finished. It's done. It's completed. And now Jesus brings in a new covenant. And in the new covenant, guess what? It's not about food and it's not about what clothes you wear or even what days you, you worship. All days are the Lord's now. And that lowered the wall so that Jews and Gentiles could now have meals together and they could connect with one another. They could come together. In fact, that's what verse 15 says. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Jesus' goal was to bring these diverse, hostile groups together in one new man or one new humanity, one new people, the church. And then verse 16, and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now catch this last line. I love this. Thereby killing the hostility. Do you sense the irony in Paul's choice of words? Like hostility is something that we think about people are killing each other. And Jesus says, or Jesus comes and he kills that. He kills the hostility. Jesus died to kill the hostility that keeps us apart. Now, I just want you to think with that for a minute. Jesus went to great costs to break down the barriers that kept people apart and bring us together. He killed the hostility between people. That's why that's one of the reasons he died. Now, if you think about the hostility that still exists in his world, you know that that's a message we need to hear. There's still great hostility between certain people groups. In our history as Canadians, we have a history where there's hostility. If you read some of the things that the atrocities that happened to First Nations people, you'll think, how could people do that? There's hostility. If you read about some of the struggles that have gone on in Canada between English and French, there's been some hostility over time. I mentioned in Toronto in the 1800s, there, was, there were riots in the downtown streets of Toronto between English and Irish, and there's been hostility. In the U.S. where I grew up, that hostility was often between blacks and whites. There was hostility, and it was brutal, and it was ugly, and it was bruising. This summer, I watched a, a documentary. Some of you who like baseball uh, maybe have heard of Ken Burns' documentary on baseball. And if you like baseball, it's really a documentary on baseball, really in the context of history. But there was one segment in the movie that showed the hostility that many of the black ball players had to live with. In the middle 1950s, when this is after Jackie Robinson broke in, there were a new crop of black 
major league baseball players that began to be put on teams and they faced hostility when they would take the field they would get jeered and cursed and and booed it was it was brutal they interviewed a guy named Kurt Flood Flood came up he actually is known for his uh, many years with the St. Louis Cardinals but he came up on the Cincinnati's team and when he was a rookie something happened to him and when he told the story I've still I still can't shake it so here he is he's he's a rookie He's one of the few black ball players on the team. And back then, when they had a doubleheader, played two games in one day, what they did between games was they, all the players would come into the clubhouse, they'd strip down, they'd take off their uniforms, throw it in a pile, and the team manager would take all the laundry and go wash it, bring it back, they'd put on their same unis, and then go up and play the second game. Double hitter. So Flood's a rookie. He doesn't know any better. All the players come in. They all take off their unis. They throw them in a pile. He takes off his uni, throws it in the pile, and he stands there, and the team manager comes out. He's the only black guy in the team, I think, at this point. And the manager comes out and takes all the laundry but his and then gets a pole, a long pole with a nail on it, and fishes out his uniform so he doesn't have to touch it fishes out his uniform and puts it in a separate bag, fishes out all his gear and sends it to a colored laundry somewhere else in town. So the white ball players all get their unis back in, in short time. They deck out, they go out and play. Kurt Flood says, I sat there in the clubhouse naked waiting for my uniform to come back from a cleaner. When it finally did, did come back, he's feeling humiliated. He puts it on and he runs out on the field. Now he's all by himself. And when people in the stands see him come out, they, he said this. He said, they called me every name. He, he told this way less emotionally than I did, so I apologize for this. He said, they called me every name but child of God. In other words, they called him all these horrific names, right? Jesus died to kill that. He died to kill that kind of hostility. He died to bring people together. He doesn't want that to go on. And Paul is saying to Jews and Gentiles, listen, listen. You may have grown up in a family where you were taught to hate certain people. That has to die. Jesus died, Jesus died to kill that. He, did, he died to bring people together in one body. Now there's no superiority, there's no outsiders, there's only insiders if you're in Christ. Jesus died to kill the hostility that keeps us apart. You see, when you come to the cross, get this, you put all your dirty laundry in the same pile as everyone else. And nobody's laundry gets segre segregated and fished out and treated as worse. All of us have dirty laundry. We all bring it to the cross. And all of us are washed by Jesus when we come there. And we put on a new uniform. We belong to him. And when we step out for him, we are now called children of God. It's true for all. Because Jesus died to kill the hostility that keeps us apart. But he died to do more than that. He didn't just want to kill the hostility. He wanted to do something even stronger. And that brings me to the second thing that Paul says in our passage. From verse 17 to 22, we find a second truth that you got to know. Not only did Jesus die to kill the hostility that keeps us apart, but here's the second thing. Jesus died to bring us together as equals. Jesus died to bring us together as equals. Like wherever you're from, 
When you come to Jesus, he says, I bring you in and you stand on equal footing with everyone else in his body. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 17, 18, 19, 20. You'll see it. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, that's Jews. Both of us get the message of peace. Both of us get the Great Commission message that says, if you come to Jesus, you're welcomed in. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you're welcomed in. Verse 18, for through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, catch this, here's the implication in light of all this. So then, you are, this Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outsiders, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So it says, Jesus dies to bring you together as equals. First of all, equals as citizens in God's kingdom. Did you see that equal citizens? Verse, I read that in verse 19. You are fellow citizens with the saints. If you're a Christian, get this, you are an equal citizen in God's kingdom with everybody else. I mentioned I was born in the States. We moved to Canada 20 plus years ago and we became Canadian citizens. I remember the day that we went to our swearing in. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect a great deal, but it was one of the more moving times of my life in Canada. We got there and there were about 60 people that day that were all receiving the oath of citizenship. And we were from a variety of countries all over the world. The judge who was presiding over it got up and she told this story. She said, when I became a judge for citizenship, it changed the way I saw Canada. I grew up in Canada. I just assumed that this is what everyone lives like. But then I began to interview people that were coming from other parts of the world and becoming citizens. She said, on one of my first day, I interviewed a woman who said to me, she, she was from another country and she said, this place should not be called Canada. It should be called heaven. Because I'm from a place where bombs were dropping on my children's heads. And now I'm in a place of peace. Another person came to, said, to her and said, you shouldn't call this land Canada. You should call this land hope. And the judge said this, I'd taken these things for granted, but now I saw my country through the eyes of people who had grown up in other places and had very difficult experiences. And as she told that story, my heart just went out and I said, thank God for Canada. This place is far from perfect, but thank God for Canada. And I remember as we took the oath of citizenship, I felt this immense sense of gratitude that I could be welcomed in. And get this now, when it comes to being a citizen, I'm the same as all of you who were born here. Now, when, when we sing the anthem, I can't sing it quite the way some of you do. Oh, Canada, my home and native land. Well, I can't really quite say that in the way you do. I kind of say under my breath, my home and adopted land. But when it comes to citizenship, I'm an equal citizen with people that were born here. Same thing's true in the church, wherever you came from. Whatever your background, when you come to Christ, you're an equal citizen in God's kingdom. You're a Gentile? Yeah, I get that. You were once far away? Yeah, I get that. But now you're, you're an equal citizen with those who are Jewish. You're part of this one thing. So you're equal citizens in God's kingdom. Secondly, you're equal family members in God's household. Verse 19, you're equal family members in God's household. Look at verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, it's one thing to be a citizen in the country. It's another thing to be family in the house. 
God says, look, I'm not just making you a citizen. I'm making you one of my kids. You get to be part of the family. Welcome into you. And you go, me? Yeah, you. But it even gets better than that. You're not just equal citizen in the kingdom or equal family in the household. Get this, you're an equal worshiper in the temple. Because that's what he goes on to say. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, talking of the church here, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says, get this, you are now an equal worshiper in God's temple. The church is his now dwelling place And you're a part of that. See, Jesus died to kill the hostility that keeps us apart, but he died to bring us together as equals. That's his vision for the church, my friends. That's what he wants the church to look like. And one day in heaven, that's what we're going to see. You remember how in in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, John's given this vision of what it's going to look like up in heaven? And he says, I looked, and there's this multitude. Nobody can count. It's like, there's lots of people here. And they come from every tribe and every tongue language group and every people group, every ethnos, and every nation. Like there's people in heaven that are from all these places, and everyone is standing around giving worship to God and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who made it possible by his death. Jesus died to kill the hostility. Jesus died to bring us together. That's what he wants for us. So let me just finish this off by talking to you very personally. Can I just talk to you personally and pastorally? This message is not just one for people out there. This is for you. First of all, here's the the wonderful thing I want you to take away. If you're in Christ, you're included in all of this. You get to come in. You're not an outsider anymore. You're an insider. You didn't get yourself in that position. Jesus did. He died to bring you in by his blood. And so now get this from whatever your background, maybe you think you'll never really fit in the church because of where you're from or what you've done. Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not true. Because of the blood of Christ, you have been brought near to God and to one another. You're an insider. So that's the first implication. But here's the second you have a responsibility and an opportunity to welcome all other believers as insiders too. Like you have the opportunity, you have the obligation to make sure that everybody else in the body of Christ feels equally a member of the kingdom, a member of the family, a member of the temple. Like they're all in and you have a place to say to them, yes, you're welcome. Nothing in me is going to keep us apart. Last May, when COVID kind of shut everything down, I had some weeks that were quieter. And I sat in in my home largely and in the back porch, and I began to type out what I called a vision script for heritage. I prayed, I thought, I dreamed, and I thought, Lord, what could you do in this school and through this school in the next three to five years? What could heritage be under your good hand? I began to write all this out. 
And one of the things that came through in my fingers, it came out of my heart was this, that heritage would come to a greater degree to reflect the beautiful mosaic of God's church, that we would represent people from different tribes and tongues and nations, because that's what heaven's going to be like. By the way, that's what Canada is like. And we need to reflect the church, the wider church here at our school. So I began to pray, Lord, would you send us more people who don't just come from the same background I have? Would you send us people from different ethnic backgrounds? Would you keep bringing in a diversity that enriches this school? And we began to dream, how could that happen? What could we do? We can pray, we can work. We can set up ESL classes to help people learn English if that's one of the barriers. We can look for scholarship ways to help people come who might not be able to afford this because of their economic standing. We started thinking, what could it look like? So we began to do that. And I've shared that vision with our faculty and our staff. And we're beginning to say, how can we live this out to a greater degree? How can God help us? You're a part of that, by the way. You're a big part of that. So I wrote that up in May, and then the death of George Floyd happened, May 25th. And you remember all the racial angst and anger that blew up. And in the weeks after that, I reached out to a number of students, graduates and current students at Heritage who are black students or other students of color, and I had phone calls with them. And I asked him a couple questions. One of the questions I asked him was, tell me about your experience at Heritage. Have you felt welcomed? Have you felt treated with respect? Has there been a sense of prejudice? I asked them. And then I asked them, what could we do better? And I consistently heard a message that did encourage me and challenge me. Over and over, those students said to me, Rick, actually they called me Dr. Reed, probably (laughs) trying to be a little nice. They said, "Uh, Dr. Reed, We've loved our time at Heritage. We've not felt, we felt welcomed in. We felt respected and loved by our faculty and our staff. But they said this, but we are aware that we're in a minority. And sometimes there are awkward conversations with other students. And I came away and I thought, we can do better. We can keep working. I'm so glad that they felt loved and respected, did not feel treated with prejudice, but Lord, we can do better. We can make this a place where people don't just feel on the outside looking in, but on the inside with everyone else. And you're a part of that solution, aren't you? You're a huge part of that. And I think for many in your generation, you long to see this. You're saying, well, of course this is the way it should be. You get this in a way that sometimes other generations don't. So what I'm saying to you is this, be a huge part of this solution. Let's make this campus a place where people from every tribe, tongue, nation come in and just so, you know, if you're in Christ, you're on the inside with all of us and you're part of the solution. See, God's vision for his church is glorious. It's grand and it starts with us. And if that happens, my brothers and sisters, if this keeps going, you know what will happen? You will graduate from this school and you will go out into churches and you will be part of a catalyst to make sure that local churches around this country are those that more and more reflect God's heart and his will for the church. And if that happens, God will be glorified and the world will be able to look and say, how do those people do that? How do they love one another when they're not all like one another? And that will give us inroads to tell them of the great hope that is given to them 
because of what Jesus has done for all of us. Can I just give you a moment just to silently pray before I pray for us? I'm going to ask you to just pray about this. Is there anything that God is saying to you that he would bring as a word of conviction? Has today surfaced in you maybe some sense of there is some latent prejudice or there's some hostility or at least indifference towards people who come from other places? Are you quick to only stick with people who are just like you? If God is speaking to you, whether you're a student or a faculty or a staff, then would you join me and say, Lord, I don't want that. I want to reflect your heart. I surrender that. I repent of that. I don't want any of that in my life. If God is speaking to you, would you speak back to him? Tell him you want to be conformed to the image of Christ in that area. And then here's the second thing. Would you join me in praying that heritage as a school would reflect in a greater degree, in an increasing degree, the beautiful mosaic of God's church, which brings people together from all places and all people groups. Would you pray that this school would become more and more of that for his glory? and for lifting up the name of Jesus. Would you ask him? I'm praying that. Would you pray that with me? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again. I praise you that you took me, a Gentile, who should be on the outside forever, and you've brought me near through the blood of Christ. I thank you that you've done that for each one who has trusted in Jesus. And now I pray, Lord, that having been brought near, I would be one of those that reaches out to bring others near by giving them the gospel and also by welcoming and embracing all who trust in Christ as my brother or sister, equal in your sight, equal in your kingdom, equal in your family, equal in your temple. Lord, would you do that in this campus so that this campus might might seed the churches with men and women who will be catalysts for positive hope and change in the years to come. And I pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being part of this today. And I hope this can be maybe a triggering of a conversation on how God's going to keep moving us towards his vision for the school and for the church. God bless you. You are dismissed. For more information on Heritage College and Seminary, visit the school's website at discoverheritage.ca. To stay connected with the Reeds, visit their website at rickandlindareed.com.